0: I know of a missionary couple who, when they went to the Middle East, they got to the field and they learned that the custom in the country that they were living in on festival days, on feast days, was that everyone would dress in their their best clothes and then they would go and visit their neighbors or their relatives. And so when the time came for their very first festival day, they, uh, they carefully cleaned their apartment, they dressed up in their best clothes, they got the chocolates that were customary, the, the traditional chocolates they would give out in this particular country, uh, hand out to visitors, and then they uh, waited in their house. And they waited, and they waited, <laughs> nobody shows up. And afterwards, they, they went to their language helpers, and they said to them, what do we do wrong? What, what did we offend people? Did we do something you know wrong? And their language helpers, uh, they started laughing and they said, "No, you didn't do anything wrong." You see, on festival days, on festival days, the big don't visit the small; the small visit the the big. And by that, what they meant was, on a festival day, you know, you would go to say the home of your eldest, your eldest brother, or to the, the grandparents, the patriarchs of your family. And when you enter into the home, you would literally take the hand of, of the big and you would kiss it as a way to show honor to them. And then the big does what, well, bigs do and, and takes care of you, feeds you, you, you know, gives you a great quality chocolate or sometimes mon- money or other presents. And what they didn't realize is because they were, you know, new missionaries at the very bottom of the social hierarchy, they didn't speak, they did not speak the, the language. They're newly arrived foreigners with no social ties. They were the smallest of the small, the minnows of that society, of that culture. And so they were the ones who, who should have done the visiting to, uh, to find the presence. And when I heard that story, it, it made me just think about how now, so much of our culture, our, our customs related to feasts, festivals, and even Christmas are, are very much shaped by our cultural assumptions. I mean, if you think about it, Santa Claus, Christmas trees, giving presents, the things that we think of as quintessentially Christmas are, they're almost entirely Western creations, and, you know, capital W, West, and they're really not even that old. They've only been around for a, a few hundred years. They didn't even exist for most of Christian history, yet they're so ingrained culturally for us now in America, it's hard to imagine a Christmas without those things. You know? How about this? How about this as far as a big to small kind of moment? The central claim of Christianity is that the, the creator of this vast universe unzipped space and time and, and stepped into this world I mean, as the, the smallest of the small, right? He stepped into the world that he made as a, a zygote, <laughs> and it's the, it's the grand miracle. If it happened, it is truly the, the grandest of all miracles. You know, the, vi- the big visits the small and becomes himself infinitesimally small. And it's, if, it's either the most significant thing that has ever happened to this, to this dark world, or it's the most significant lie this most significant darkness that's ever been told in this dark world. It, it, it's one or the other. And so what I wanted to do today, it's kind of hard to preach a Christmas, Christmas sermons, passages, and find a whole lot of new in them, in that, like, you preach them every year, <laughs> and, and it's a challenge to to mine something uh, new out of it. But I want to read from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. This is the annunciation of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary, And play around a little bit with some of those big, small uh, dynamics that I think are found in the story. So we read that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Uh, The virgin's name was Miriam, would have been her name in Hebrew. Miriam, um, in English, it's Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived the Son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless or barren for nothing will be impossible with God And mary said See, I am the lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said Then the angel left her. Let's pray again Our father in heaven uh, on this first sunday of advent We reflect on the good things that you have already done for us in jesus and we Anticipate the glorious things that are yet to be realized. You know, you made promises that you alone can keep. You give peace that can be found nowhere else. And you pledged a hope that you alone can fulfill. And so it is that we pray that uh, as this Advent progresses, um, fill us, Lord, with just an overflowing gratitude and a humility that you would take notice of us and truly a a joy that pushes back the sorrows of our lives. And even now, speak to us in the Annunciation uh, from the passage we just read in Luke chapter 1. And please do this because we ask you of it in the name of your son, Jesus, and God's people said. Amen. Mary is a young girl, about 14 years old, we think, somewhere around there. She lives in an insignificant town, far away from the centers of power and piety, her family of origin is not mentioned in the story. Her relative Elizabeth's family of origin is. You know, she was from a priestly uh, line. Mary was not. I mean, Mary is poor. Mary is probably a, a peasant. Mary is, the most significant thing about Mary is simply her insignificance. And yet she's given the honor of being, you know, the mother of God. And so I'll start out with number one. Uh, why was this small girl chosen? Why was a small, small girl tr- chosen? Normally, we get into like crazy, big old debates in Christianity about Mary because she's kind of a flashpoint. And we answer that question why she was chosen based on whether or not we have a high view of Mary or a low view of Mary. what do I mean by that? Well, a high view of Mary is is probably chiefly uh, illustrated in our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters of the faith, Christians who they believe that the virgin mary was conceived sinless in the womb of her mother she was immaculately conceived and she not only was she a per- virgin in, per- in per- perpetuity through her whole life but she was also kept sinless entirely through her her whole life and um, and she is one whom we can speak to and one who can has like a, the special ear of jesus and we can ask mary you know mother mary please speak to jesus on our behalf um is that why she was chosen? Uh, maybe so, but the passage doesn't exactly teach us that. It, the Bible really doesn't teach us that. She, it doesn't seem, based on Gabriel's words, that she's chosen because she's in some way perfect or, or perfectly worthy. So that would be the high view. The, the low view is kind of encapsulated by a, an interview that I, list, I read between Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times and the president of Union Theological Seminary, which I think, I don't know, somewhere on the East Coast. Union is one of those seminaries that is kind of way out there theologically. And he's asking the seminary pre- pre- president, um, you know, give me your view on a number of different Christian issues. And when they came to the virgin birth, she says that the, the cl- claim that Jesus was born of a virgin is, quote, bizarre and false, <laughs> She said, the, the reason the early Christianity made up the story of the virgin birth is because they had a s- theology of sex, that sex is sinful, and so they thought the best kind of a female body is an untouched body, body, you know, untouched by sex, you know, pure from any sexual contamination, which, you know, that kind of teaching, she went on to explain, has led to the oppression of women through the years. Is that why she was chosen because it was a made up story? No, that's that's way off. Here's why I think she was chosen. Because and we prayed about this a few weeks ago. That there's a global food crisis right now that's led to the starvation of literally millions of children around the world today. And in a world where we have more than enough food to feed everybody, But we have such a disparate distribution of wealth in this world, and we have countries that are so epically poorly run that the children in those countries are starving. Uh, We have war in Ukraine, war in uh, Gaza. There will probably be another school shooting somewhere in the country in the next week. Uh, There will probably be another famous and powerful man who will be brought low by accusations of sexual assault or some kind of impropriety. The reason that Mary was chosen is because humanity has failed. The the virgin birth is really God saying, Joseph, move over, because you can't fix this. Like, none of you guys, none of you can fix it. You think about it, throughout human history, we have done our best to raise our children as well as we can. We've sent them to the finest schools in the world. We've given them the best vitamins, the best minerals and food supplements. We've trained them with the finest moral instruction imaginable. And at the end of the day, every single one of us are selfish to the core, right? We are prideful and power hungry. The reason that Mary is chosen is if there is going to be a cure, it has to come from the outside, when we affirm in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, that is not, it's not about sex. It's not about sex, and it's not about biology. It's about, it is God's declaration that humanity has failed, that Joseph could not father a hero, the hero that we needed, and neither could any one of the rest of us. I was listening to another pastor comment on my favorite Christmas carol, which is O Holy Night. And if you were here uh, before the service started, Carlos was uh, singing it, uh, practicing it. it was, I love the line in O Holy Night, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. A thrill of hope. And this pastor, he, he said something about that that I had never thought of before. He said, I don't know what that means to you, a thrill of hope, but for me, for hope to thrill for hope to electrify, it's got to mean that I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming. I look out on a world, I don't see any easy answers. I look out on a world that I feel, I look out on a world with weariness all over me where things are bad and it feels like, yeah, getting worse. A thrill of hope is when a light shines into the darkness when it is least expected, it shines into the womb. Of a nondescript peasant girl um, Down in the mud Like a Victor Hugo's little cosette In the middle of nowhere in a, in a no-name town In a no-name family And what we prayed earlier in the service Is what we uh, need to keep praying That, Lord, would you do it again? <laughs> would you do it again? Number two So first it was uh, You know, how did, uh, why was she chosen? Number two, how did this small girl respond? Uh, And I don't know if you caught it, but the angel Gabriel gives what sounds almost like a double explanation for this miraculous event that's going to have. He says in verse 35, first, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. In that language, the Holy Spirit you know coming upon her it, it harkens back to the very beginning of the bible to the book of genesis where the spirit of god is hovering Above the waters at the moment of creation when new life is going to arise and In that respect, it's sort of like the holy spirit is there for a new creation event in in the mary's womb, but then he says that the second part of it is that the power of the most high Will overshadow you and that's something more I think what he's suggesting is that not only the Spirit will be present, but God the Father is himself. He will surround her completely with his sovereign power, and together the Father and the Spirit will do something that, that couldn't be done by her alone, and that is you know, a spark of light, a fire, a fire out of nothing. Then Gabriel goes on in his description, and he gets a little political in his description. I don't know if you caught that, but this child that is promised is going to be a king in the line of David's descendants, a king who will reign forever, whatever that means. Not only uh, will the king reign over Israel, but he will reign over the whole world, and this coming king will be in some sense, in some sense known as the son of God, which if the, the Caesar in Rome got wind of that, oh man, he's he's gonna be pretty mad because he has a, a rival claimant to the throne as as the son of God. And so the question I asked then is: how does this small girl respond to this enormous message? And what does she do? Well, she, she does what any sensible person would do. She openly expresses her, her doubt. And she says to Gabriel, like, How will this be since I am a virgin? she doesn't respond with this like wide-eyed starry-gazed hey you're an angel and all this is miraculous and so i'm just going to go along with it no she she says something that any rational person would say it's like how can this happen if i'm not having sex and in doing so she she demonstrates a willingness to be honest about uh, her doubts her uncertainties and her questions and I like how one author puts it. He says that, no, this isn't a dishonest doubt. Like a dis- dishonest doubt, if she was going to raise a dishonest doubt, it would be more along the lines of, what? A crazy idea. That's impossible. Get out of here. And she just walks away. This is an honest doubt. How, like, how can it be? And what's most wonderful about this doubt is if she had never expressed it, the angel would never have spoken, one of the most precious verses in all the Bible, which is verse 37. Nothing will be impossible with God. Has that verse ever comforted you in your life before? (laughs) Nothing, nothing, nothing is impossible with God. Um, That is a verse that I know I have clung to in dark places, and it's a verse that's helped so many people, and probably you. And did you realize that the only reason we get that revelation is because a little girl doubted? A little girl raised her hand and asked a question. Tim Keller, uh, he expands on this and he says, uh, the the more you're willing to express doubt honestly and humbly, the more you bring up your honest questions, the further you and the people around you are going to get. And I've seen plenty of people uh, who refuse to ask questions and refuse to express their doubts. You know, some refuse out of hard-heartedness, while others refuse because they think somehow it is disrespectful. But what they don't realize is that refusal to express your doubts robs everyone else from the opportunity to go deeper. You know, you think about it. There's so much, so many things that we, we, we know in Christianity, but we know it only on a very superficial level. Like, we haven't gone very deep. We haven't gone very far. And it really really it's a massive blessing to ever have a skeptic in the room of Christians who who is who's willing to raise a hand in the corner and say hey pastor I got a question I got a you know and is honest with those doubts and reservations I got a question about this I mean don't you how do you fit a blue whale inside a red ant because that's what's going on here how do you take the, the creator of the universe and stick him in, in the womb of a woman, a 14-year-old? Now, I've had five kids. Of only one is still in the home, so we're almost empty nested. But uh, I remember back to the first time when Aaron was pregnant with our first uh, daughter, Hannah, and it, it blows every every father's mind away, the very first time when all of a sudden that You know, that belly bulges as a a hand or a leg kicks out and you see, you know, and you think to yourself, how could that be my child doing that? And then as they get older and they get bigger, no longer are they punching and kicking, but they're like doing cartwheels in there. And so, you know, her her belly goes from just protruding to like waves after waves, like a storm tossed sea. And yeah, you know, you can't believe it. That's my baby in there. I mean, but what we really can't believe is that's God in there. The word was made flesh. In the words of Augustine, like this is the stuff that's mind-boggling, isn't it? He was created by a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy. He, the word without whom all human eloquence is mute you know, if you don't have any lingering questions about things like that, then you're just not paying attention, you know, and so what I I want always to say to you, and if you're visiting us, I mean, our hope was that we would be able to form a, a Christian community where people would be able to process their questions and their doubts, and so please never, ever, ever hesitate to raise your hand and ask a question. You know how we talk about the Big Bang? That all of the matter of the universe was concentrated into a, singular, a singularity that is about the size of a period at the end of a sentence. And all of a sudden, it went boom! In the, in the incarnation, we are talking about you know, not the Big Bang, but the big implosion, right? Where the God of the universe, who created everything, has imploded into uh, the womb of the Virgin Mary. And that's something to raise your hand and and question about then. Number three, finally, notice the big thing that Mary is modeling for us. Courage and commitment. I mean, you've probably thought of this before. I've thought of it uh, Can you imagine how terrified she must have been and how confused she must have been to be told that she's going to have a son when she's an unmarried virgin and she's living in a shame and honor society and shame and honor societies, they don't react very well to hearing news like this. Can can you imagine having to tell your parents, like, I'm pregnant out of wedlock and it wasn't my fault? Having to tell your fiance, yeah, I got pregnant, but if I told you the whole story, you'd never believe me having to tell yourself i didn't ask for this she didn't ask for this i i did nothing to contribute to this but i'm about to begin nine months of pregnancy and i'm going to give birth to the world's king all of that is kind of a lot to process and yet what what's modeled for us in verse 38 this is going back to the old language of it but she i mean look at this behold I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. That is, that is what faith looks like, isn't it? I mean, I find it encouraging to have this kind of faith, this kind of courage modeled by a small girl who has the strength to say, let it be to me according to your word. When most people, when certainly I, would, would be the kind of a person to say, uh, that, that seems way too hard for me to do. The, that path, that path that you were laying out before me, way too hard. If I could speak to you personally for just a, a minute, all of us find ourselves at one time or another in our life on that path, on the hard path, on the, on the, the scary, the, the, the totally frightening um, path And sometimes you'll come to a crossroads of joy and fear and And you may even be at that place today You know, you're on a really hard road You feel like god is leading you down a scary hard road and you've come to an advent crossroads And advent is a time. I just want to say it to you. It's a time It's a time to take courage. I love the words of madeline lingle She says how brave am I? Can I bear without breaking apart this extraordinary birth? She's saying that like in the, in the words of Mary, right? How brave I? can I bear without breaking apart this extraordinary birth? How brave are you? Can you bear without breaking apart? You know, Maybe the cross that he ha- has asked you to take up. So often the cast of characters at Christmas are constantly being told, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Even though the path before them feels too much, Mary is told not to be afraid. She's found favor with God. Joseph is told, do not be afraid to marry. Mary as your wife. And the shepherds, as you know, in the field, they're greeted by a terror of angels in the sky. And they're told, do not be afraid. And I'm saying you know, to you, if, if I'm speaking to you, um, summon your courage. Maybe not so much summon your courage up like, you know, just myself up by my bootstraps, but I'm just asking you to consider the possibility that the crossroads that you're at right now, maybe, maybe nothing is impossible with God. Maybe nothing is is impossible with God, and that the crossroad that you're at is actually the birthing center, you know, the, the place where the Holy Spirit wants to birth, you know, new life in you, new life in your family, and Okay, well, let me conclude. Uh, I want to say something about her commitment and our commitment. You know, sometimes people wonder, they, they think, well, if I become a Christian, will I have to do this or will I have to give up that? Will I have to pray? Will I have to give up sex? Will I have to quit my job? Will I have to change my views on certain things? And uh, certainly questions like that are perfectly legitimate because Jesus himself says that if you want to be my disciple, you need to count the, t- the cost. You, know, you need to count the cost of following me, the cost of discipleship. Uh, well, what uh, one author says is that instead of counting the cost, many of us, well, we prefer to negotiate the cost. <laughs> that is, we're we're willing to give up some things, but but we won't give up the right to determine what those things are. Like we want to be in a position to sort of do ongoing. Cost-benefit analysis on the various kinds of behavior which might keep us in the driver's seat, sort of on the throne of our own lives, as it were. And when it comes to following Jesus, the the most difficult part of it is actually giving in to Him, giving in. And in some fashion, you have to say what Mary said when you give your life to Jesus. You have to say like, "I don't know. I don't know what you're going to ask of me, Lord." I don't, I don't know where you're going to take me, Lord, but whatever you say in your word, whether I like it or not, I will patiently accept whatever you send into my life, whether I understand it or not. And that is so true. Like, um, we, can't, we can't know ahead of time all the things that God will ask, will, will ask us to do. But if you want Jesus to be at the middle of your life, you have to obey him unconditionally. And that means like, giving up control of your life and dropping your conditions. You have, to, you have to give up the right to say, I will obey you if, you know. I will do this if. Because if you say if, what you're really saying is, I'll receive your recommendations and, and I'll, I might act on them, but I'll, that's what they are. They're, they're recommendations. No, if you want Jesus with you, you, you really do have to give up your right to self-determination. And what you need to know, and I really don't know who I'm talking to this afternoon, but what you need to know, if you're tracking with me, what you need to know is that decision is always worth it. It's absolutely the best decision you'll make in your whole life. Because the true miracle of Advent is that God comes and makes his home with us. Like he comes among us in this real flesh-and-blood world. He comes to a manger with dirt and manure on the floor. He comes to an insignificant little girl from an insignificant family, from a nothing town, like on a cultural scale of value. Uh, her age, her gender, her ethnicity, her possessions, she's at the very bottom. She ranks the lowest. And he comes into, into that kind of life. And the true miracle is that God's presence can come into yours, too can. Um, That is the greatest gift that we or anyone else can receive this Christmas, and it's the gift of the immeasurably big coming to the small to us. Amen.